Hello, my name is Daniel Nenny, founder of SemiWiki, the open forum for semiconductor professionals. Welcome to the Semiconductor Insiders podcast series. If you have a topic you'd like us to cover, please post it on semiwiki.com and we'll get right to it. My guest today is Richard Barnett, Chief Marketing Officer and SaaS Sales Leader at SupplyFrame. With more than 25 years of leadership experience in strategic marketing, sales, and product management, Richard is recognized as a thought leader on supply chain and strategic sourcing transformation, as well as digital marketing engagement with design engineers. Welcome to the podcast, Richard. Thank you for having me. So let's let's get into it. Um, first of all, how does the U.S. decreased reliance on imported components play a role in domestic economy and geopolitical relationships? Well, it's, it's a great question. When we look at the global electronics value chain, it's incredibly globalized. Um, but the demand drivers in markets are also increasingly uh, dynamic because the end markets are so diverse because everything's getting electrified. There's so many digital experiences that are being created both for consumers and for businesses in different industries that um, looking at the lens of geopolitical uh, dynamics, increasing trade uh, regulatory pressures, uh, new questions of security concerns, particularly with the role of advanced electronics, AI, for example, and uh, in in different dimensions of both economic opportunity, industry expansion, as well as um, competition, um, you know, is 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 very much all you know tied together. And so, if, when we look at imported components and just the nature of the global electronics, you know, industry, um, it's incredibly important. Sort of the sort of you know impact on many key industries to understand whether you know incentive shifts public private partnerships trade regulations what the intended and sometimes unintended consequences could be and we've seen you know with the global chip uh shortages with the pandemic uh and then increasing growth and focus on ai and you know the sort of not just in the united states but in multi in europe in the eu as well as in um particularly in in korea and japan some of the largest markets for um, electronics, semiconductor manufacturing, IT innovation, but then also in markets. Um, this has become a really hot and important topic, and we've seen a lot of evolution around, you know, direct government involvement for different reasons. And so we're just now seeing, I think, the impact and the strategic direction of what is, you know, both the sort of situation today where we're seeing increasing you know, pressures for protecting, you know, the semiconductor capacity for different reasons in, you know, geographic locations and increasing that new fab capacity, as well as in the near term looking at trade impact, both on supporting innovation, both into the semiconductor industry, both in terms of semiconductor equipment sales, but also the, you know, broadly electronic components of multiple types of commodity, you know, categories, whether it's passives and actives and then within passives resistors diodes etc you know you have thousands of suppliers and you know over 400 sub commodity groups that we look at um, on a global basis across our network and we're tracking and seeing the impact of demand supply lead time shortage changes in real time and we're sort of looking at the future and understanding what the implications of some of these you know political and driven and sort of public-private partnership sort of impacts could mean over the next few years. And I think there's been a growing consensus to uh, look ahead to and encourage nearshoring or friendshoring 
as well as you know a general trend to deglobalization. But there's many open-ended questions now around where are we going and, and what's the impact in the near term uh, and what is the real impact that government incentives can provide given the globalized nature of, of the, you know, the entire industry uh, and value chain that's serving multiple downstream industries. So that's really the scope of complexity of what we're dealing with. So do you see reshoring continuing to gain traction in today's supply chain sector? I mean, certainly semiconductor manufacturers are going through a, mm-hmm. a reshoring surge. Absolutely. I mean, we see reshoring, friendshoring that term or, you know, different ways to incent, whether it's final assembly locations in near shore, near region to, to key target markets or um, specifically the in, within semiconductor, like you're saying, the um, economic incentives, um, you know, kind of balance incentives for both, you know, talent development, IP, innovation, you know, it's, a, it's the CHIPS Act was a very good example of a fairly well thought out uh, piece of legislation that was trying to be as inclusive and took a lot of input from industry. Um, but you also see the inherent limitations of completing that near shoring effort because of the inherent globalized nature of these value chains. So what, it will continue to gain traction. Um, it will be definitely true. and We'll see these patterns play out within broadly electronics, but you also see it in other adjacent supply chains um, that, you know, sometimes are moving, you know, to nearshore final assembly locations or, you know, getting sources of supply diversified away from over-reliance on concentration in any one geography, which is overall healthier for modern supply chains to have inbuilt resilience around source of supply. I think when we when we dive into semiconductors specifically, though, there's a, a dip, an interesting dynamic where both the the time to investment and go live and the size of these investments for new fab plants is, you know, anywhere between two to five billion dollars over a three to five year period of time. And most of that new investment is going into the latest node, meaning smallest nanometer sort of size for wafer packaging and IC design that really supports the next generation of um, consumer electronics devices like mobile phones that require the highest level of miniaturization, power management, et cetera. What's being left behind, though, and where there's a timing disconnect around those new capital investments coming online from a new capacity perspective is that they're leaving the sort of mature node or middle node legacy uh, analog ICs, for example, sort of behind. We're not getting that new capacity, even though the demand, particularly within automotive and aerospace and defense and industrial applications, continues to be fairly strong. Um, There's going to be continued capacity shortages, even with the planned uh, you know, expansion plans that are there. And then the second dimension of that is you like, got to look at the ecosystem around each one of those new fabs. It requires new suppliers, new technical support services, new, um, you know, OSAD, you know, sort of this back-end, front-end dynamic within where the full end-end process is for semiconductor fabrication. Many of those OSAD providers where you have testing and packaging are continue to be in other geographic locations. So while we might be building the primary, you know, fab to chip, you know, uh, set in the primary fab in say United States or in Europe, we might be sending those to packaging them back in Asia in different locations because of the, the diversified nature of the full ecosystem around semiconductor uh, chipset packaging design and fulfillment. And that's where you're, you're going to continue to see exposure to multiple geographic markets and the related called the surface area of supply chain risk that's associated with simply the different locations of manufacturing supply, much less 
sort of, you know, other considerations around security or um, specialization around new industry development uh, that will, you know, maybe, um, you know, put greater pressure on nearshoring and reshoring as you go forward. So we see mixed signals right now where we see health and overall capacity diversification and new capacity coming online, but continued reliance and continued issues around uh, exposure to, um, you know, whether it's from a government security perspective, concerns around what maintains, you know, is, is, is retained in China, for example, whether there's IP concerns there, or just in general having multiple sources of, you know, and complicated supply chains that are still relying on multiple geographic locations or regions uh, to fulfill the, uh, the end product uh, all the way from, you know, all the way from production to tier two, tier three suppliers, all the way into end markets like OEMs and automotive or aerospace and defense and government uh, entities are still relying on multi-tier supply chains. Right. So what trends do you expect to see in the next five years? Well, I think one is that we're going to see Chinese suppliers and others that are seeing a kind of a strategic shift um, of in markets, key customers that they're supporting to diversify their sources of either final assembly or new factory locations in different geographic regions. So within Europe, you know, North America, for example, in addition to maybe where they have a footprint in say China and Vietnam or in, in other locations within Southeast Asia. Um, I think that's a, that's a trend you're gonna see. I think secondly, with these new semiconductor major fab production um, locations being ramped up, you're going to see new diversification of, of incentives to build an ecosystem around those geographic locations. Um, and, we're, and we're already beginning to see that in India, for example, with um, you know, the focus on Apple and ramping up production there and the ecosystem of suppliers that are coming in to be co-located. Samsung's investments, um, you know, as well as, uh, you know, sort of Intel pivoting to, you know, build foundry services. There's an interesting diversification of where those ecosystems around semiconductor fab operations, uh, primary operations are being built up. We see it in Texas, where I'm in Austin, Texas as well, with, you know, Samsung building new, new fab uh, just north of Austin, for example. And that, that actually, I think overall is, is healthy, but it also creates um, new opportunities. And then in a lot of these emerging markets like in India and even Vietnam, one of the persistent challenges coming, you know, hand in hand with the economic expansion, you know, new, new, new factory expansion is trying to find a talented workforce um, that can actually meet the demand for the technical jobs, training, et cetera, that's required to support uh, scaling those operations. And I think that's going to be a, a, an interesting challenge is, is how fast can supporting you know resources around you know skilled developing skilled resources and, and labor in each one of those target markets how can it match the pace for these new capital investments so that's another dimension to look at right so can you explain how adopting a shift left approach to design for resilience and bridging silos across engineering to supply chain management uh, how that can mitigate the risks associated with supply chain volatility well, this is such an interesting question. I mean, we've heard the term shift left used in different domains for a while. It kind of came out of um, development operations, software design, where the idea is that, you know, if you design in quality, if you try to catch, um, you know, a potential quality issue, a coding issue um, as early as possible, it's 
the cost of change, the cost to correct is, you know, eight times, 10 times, 20 times cheaper than once, say, the code is released. And the same is true for electronic hardware design, system design, where if you design in a component that, um, you know, is single source of supply or has a low year's end of life or has, you know, massive lead time challenges, like what we saw coming out of the pandemic of certain components having 52-week, 58-week lead times, um, it's effectively designing in a component that might be obsolete for for all, uh, uh, you know, purposes because the downstream need to then later ramp to volume when you move out of design phase into early, you know, new product introduction and to ramp to volume in manufacturing, um, you could have designed in challenges that require a full redesign of either that component or a board, um, finding alternates, qualifying those those new suppliers in, and then understanding and, and assessing the risk and cost implication of those changes is what we've seen across almost every core industry that we support, whether it's consumer electronics and one of our key customers that builds uh, home products was spending up to 65% of their engineering capacity redesigning existing products which had already been released to manufacturing because of supply chain shortages or designing issues that they hadn't fully uh, thought about in terms of risk um, or in terms of flexibility in, in alternates that were pre-designed in. So they had to go back and redesign and sometimes those redesign cycles could take up to six months. The market is stabilizing, lead times have you know fallen um, and, and so have relative price increases have, have begun to ramp down, but we're going to continue to see um, spot shortages, um, imbalances around inventory mix um, in the channel, in distribution channel partners, or in terms of production allocations, um, surprise and catch many downstream industries as the next area to go um, go fix. And the best way to, to fundamentally drive resilience is at the point of design, where 80% of the life cycle cost and risk is designed into the product. And to, to look at a different risk uh, balancing approach where you're allowing for and trying to encourage, you know, not just, you know, double source of supply, let's say, or, you know, but, but look at alternate suppliers, alternate sources of locations, alternate um, components that might be formed for function equivalents for the same effective, you know, design um, requirements for new hardware, new systems. Um, and this is what we mean by shift left is really encouraging this more collaborative process and intelligence to bring the same single source of truth around the assessment of risk of a component and of bill material design all the way through from engineering to procurement and supply chain partners. So that is you're constantly seeing new issues, new lead time changes, um, risk being assessed as early as possible and, and driving fast trade-off decision-making that becomes the key for companies to be, remain resilient and to adjust or respond sometimes to new market conditions, which were fully unexpected. And uh, we think that that's almost as important as the broad goal of, um, you know, reducing obsolete parts in design or just focusing on like a China plus one strategy. I mean, those are all part of that strategy, but we really need to get deep into the design process to really, because that's where the really the root cause begins of either designing in resilience or designing in risk. And so that's really what we encourage uh, the process or digital transformation of a lot of our customers is to shift left, start there, and then bring everyone along into a collaborative view of the same same uh, digital twin, essentially, of the product with the same digital thread of real-time intelligence around what's going on in the market that complements a lot of their own internal enterprise systems that oftentimes are siloed 
and the processes are siloed. So we're really trying to help companies think holistically about this problem. And how has reshoring impacted the way the U.S. targets product and material sourcing amidst these global tensions you mentioned? Well, it's interesting. I think different companies have different levels of maturity around how they're thinking about um, their diversification of sources of supply and the way that um, sourcing decision makings are, are being made. So if we look at when you're in a material shortage environment, which we've generally been in some, you know, heightened level of critical part shortages uh, in key commodity group areas, et cetera, that have impacted many industries. At the end of the day, companies have been willing to, you know, make, you know, sometimes very expensive spot buys to cover short-term material shortages because the impact on not meeting customer demand is so high. And there's this interesting question around whether companies and, you know, say finance leaders are setting the right goals for procurement to focus only on lowest cost or balance cost versus risk. And what is the risk premium that they're willing to invest in where you, on the balance of all the different suppliers that you're managing and say alternate parts, like we were talking about before, whether you're willing to pay on average a little bit more to have more sources of supply or diversification. And that, I think, is being played out inside many companies in a very uneven way, um, where we're almost falling back to the pattern of what we saw before we learned a lot in this in the pandemic to the old way of doing things, um, particularly around incentives for procurement. And engineering is being incented to look at on time, on quality, you know, milestones for delivery of new product innovations and not being incented to look at what the economic cost and risk is that they're designing in. So that lack of incentive alignment is really a problem. And I think that in the U.S., we're going to see more pressure to encourage diversification, say, outside of where there's security risk and regulatory incentives and trade policy to change the balance of incentives to move away from those design and decisions. But ultimately, you know, you know, China represents 25% of the total semiconductor in-market sales. And just there alone, there's a lot of um, challenges to uh, move away from sources of supply, say of electronic components or semiconductor chips that are coming from China and to find effective alternates, but even more importantly, to invest if they're at a higher cost or at a different level of, of growth in terms of lead time and volume to make those investments early. And I think over the next few years, we're going to see companies continue to struggle with trying to find that balance in the context of shifting geopolitical um, dynamics and, and uh, incentives that, you know, not just the U.S., but any, you know, sort of regional economic group actor like the EU uh, is writing incentives and trade restrictions that might encourage diversification. Yeah, you mentioned China. So what is the risk of decoupling from China reliance? You know, or, or what are the risks associated with continuing to rely on China for chip manufacturing? I mean, it's it's a really um, challenging uh, proposition because I, on, on one extreme, if you look at complete uh, decoupling, um, I think there was a Deutsche Bank um, uh, analysis that said that that could cost up to $1 trillion in total economic costs um, as and take three to five years to try to begin to diversify essentially 
buy commodity groups, sources of supply outside of China and build that same capability, you know, in, in the North America and Europe in different market regions. It's just kind of not theoretically easy or fast. Um, you know, what would accelerate and be massively destabilizing would be a, a massive geopolitical shift in the relationship between, say, China and Taiwan. I think that would be massively disruptive and impactful and accelerate quick, rapid moves to try to move to alternative sources. But there's, a, there's an inherent limit in the ability to do that because it's not just about picking other suppliers. It's about whole ecosystems which have developed over 20, 30 years of expertise, of tooling, of you know, ecosystems of near, near, near um, uh, you know, co-located supply base and services that is incredibly hard to replicate anywhere else um, in the world. So I think there is a need to improve supply chain resilience and, and accelerate and diversify sources of supply. I think a lot of Chinese suppliers are trying to find and build locations outside of China if they're export-oriented anyway, and that's helpful. But I think it's going to be an evolutionary, market-driven uh, speed of change. It's not going to come top-down by fiat, and the level of complexity is too hard to make any easy, fast-moving changes for most companies that are building electronic hardware, embedding it into their products and services. Um, and so that that decoupling uh, risk, I think, is is will move very slow, and it'll be more of a slow diversification rather than a massive shift. And in, in, and we're seeing that right now in trade balances. Is you know, deglobalization can be measured in terms of global trade volumes and we've seen global trade volumes go down but we're not seeing the import export on electronic components you know go down by more than eight nine percent with china even at a down market where in markets are you know fairly consumer demand inflationary pressures etc have, have been a natural uh, limiter on in demand so we need to kind of come out to a new stabilized um view over the next two two to three years and we'll see where this rebalancing is taking place by market dynamic forces versus what's happening from a regulatory perspective. And so what would be the impacts for the current Japanese restrictions? I mean, is this going to be a problem for China's semiconductor foundries to worry about? I think it is. And it's not just in Japan, obviously it's, it's kind of, you know, export controls and, and uh, trade restrictions for that require licensing, you know, has been, um, based on the U.S. government and then both Korea and Japan independently acting is creating pressures for uh, particularly the latest semiconductor equipment IP to come into the semiconductor manufacturing base within China and severely limiting their ability to innovate. Um, I think we all saw the news of the new Huawei phone, which had, you know, sort of designed in 95% locally sourced components. Um, that was a kind of a bold uh, science project, you know, to show the world that it's possible. But the actual ability if you did a teardown analysis on what china's domestic ability is to ramp or support that those different nodes and the mix of technologies that were involved in in sort of advanced um, um semiconductor design is still severely restricted and is still highly dependent upon uh very controlled export of equipment from like asml for example and other semiconductor equipment uh, manufacturers into the china market as well as related ip around that so i think it is it is slowing China's ability to be fully self-sufficient, if that's even possible, and will restrict semiconductor equipment manufacturing and foundry capacity to be at sort of medium uh, maturity nodes rather than at the latest nodes, sort of, you know, five, six nanometer and below. Um, we're not going to see as much development or capacity because of the limitations on the 
IP and the actual infrastructure for semiconductor fabrication coming being highly reliant on Japan, U.S., Europe, basically, um, in order to continue down that innovation path. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about how Japan and the U.S. are aligned in their efforts to cut off reliance on China? I mean, is this even possible in the long term? I think it it is. They are very aligned. I think there's a level of of collaboration, orchestration, harmonization around policies that's active, and and we've seen that in um, in the last 12 months. But we've also seen industry groups, trade groups in the United States and in Japan, uh, voice concerns about the impact that that's having on either those that sell into chips and components into China, or that are directly reliant upon some portion, 10, 20% of their revenues um, in selling, you know, semiconductor equipment and IP into China, you know, fabrication. So there's a, there's a, there's a, an emerging higher economic cost that is continuing to develop. And I think we'll see a rebalancing or kind of a rescoping of export controls um, that are, there maybe were a little bit too wide, particularly around memory, for example. Um, and we've seen that recently with, Hynix and SK Hynix and, and Samsung, um, you know, seeking more uh, opportunities to have less restrictions to sell back into China for those that just need to buy components from outside of, you know, uh, China to build other downstream devices. But we'll probably continue to see very specific orchestration on trying to control IP related to the most advanced chipset designs that are focused basically on AI or AI applications, because that's what's also closely being associated with risk to national security uh, implications for the application use cases that are emerging in those areas. And I think we'll see a continued kind of realignment and harmonization around where the highest risk goals and security concerns are. Um, and uh, again, I think some some rebalancing we'll see over the next year as well. But some of this looks like it'll be permanently put into place, and some of this is is creating a, um, in some ways, a, a domestic market opportunity for China uh, innovators to step in and replace. But the the that's a steep hill to fully replace what's being restricted, if not impossible. Right. A final question, Richard. Um, how do you see AI changing the landscape of the electronic supply chain? Well, I think there's so many dimensions around AI. I think, you know, with the innovation and excitement around large language models, which is only a subset of AI around chat, GPT, et cetera, that we've kind of got it, you know, as consumers have sort of been experiencing and, and excited and, and uh, maybe scared of a little bit the implications. Um, the, the, the growth in, in AI design chipsets that are purpose-built for AI applications at scale, rather large training models or managing AI applications, um, has been a massive growth for companies like NVIDIA and their systems business to specialize in purpose-built chipsets to power AI applications and use cases. Um, I think the, the, the other dimension of this is just how does the application of AI change the way the electronic industry uh, innovates and how does it sell and support customer innovation cycles. And that's more of an ecosystem effect, which I think is we're also in the middle of at supply frame as part of Siemens and, and there's a lot of interesting opportunities for both improved automation, um, increased intelligent design and reuse and uh, simulation and, and um, you know, advanced uh, modeling of multiple design uh, options, um, you know, at scale from a computing perspective where you can apply genetic algorithms, for example, to learn, test and, 
um, you know, do material simulation, for example, across thousands of permutations within hours that would normally not even be feasible for a team of engineers to try to replicate on their own. So these are breakthrough technologies that are improving the speed and performance of the innovation cycle and the quality of their outcomes. And I think that's to be embraced and celebrated. Um, but I do think that we need to be very careful around uh, some applications of AI and the sort of emerging thinking around, you know, ethical frameworks for applied AI in-house, uh, managing data and sources of data that feed AI large language models, for example, is very open-ended right now. So there's a lot of risks that need to be managed. And it'll come over time, I think, through uh, public-private cooperation, industry um, consortiums kind of coming together and creating standards. But um, there's some uh, unrealized risk for sure. And it's a, it's a, it's a very exciting but potentially disruptive time. I agree completely. Great conversation, Richard. I really appreciate your time. And thank you, everyone, for listening. And have a great day. That concludes our podcast. Thank you all for listening. And have a great day. Thank you.